The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Welcome to our podcast, The Tactical Take, where we discuss our thoughts on the markets, highlighting the opportunities and risks that we see in the current environment, and how we're positioned in the tactical sleeves of the Natixis models to reflect this backdrop. My name is Jack Janisiewicz, Portfolio Manager and Lead Portfolio Strategist with Natixis Investment Manager Solutions, and I lead the Natixis Investment Manager Solution Investment Committee. Markets are all about narratives, and we have certainly seen the narratives theme come full circle this month. From hard landing to soft landing to no landing and then back to hard landing, the markets run the gamut. If we take a step back and dissect the evolution of these narratives, it's an interesting map to follow. We pounded the table last month arguing that the hot prints in January seemed a little fishy and felt that we might see some give back in the March releases. Looking at the March payrolls print, which reflected the February data, we saw the economy adding 311,000 jobs compared to the consensus of 225,000. January's job ads were revised down by 57,000, so that hot January number did have some froth taking out of it as we suspected, but not nearly as much as we had guessed. More importantly, hourly earnings continued their decline, hitting an annualized pace of 2.4%. So while the headline job ads were certainly stronger than expected, not something the bulls wanted to see, the details of the report were not quite as strong, helping to take the edge off of the headline number. Employment declined most notably in areas where one would expect given the headcount right-sizing we're witnessing. But on the other hand, services sectors continue to see strong job ads, led most notably by leisure and hospitality. Net-net, more progress in the tightest areas of the labor market. The key takeaway from this report? Market participants and the Fed may be underestimating the amount of slack in the labor market. For years through the last cycle, we heard that the labor market was tight, and there wasn't any slack, and yet we continued to add jobs at a robust pace of nearly 200,000 ads per month. Perhaps we're falling into the same trap once again. Despite robust job ads, we're seeing hourly earnings growth material decelerating back to the pre-crisis trend. Employment gains are not falling off of a cliff, while participation rates continue to climb and wage pressures continue to abate. Lower those recession odds and bump up those soft landing odds. But while the soft landing narrative was in full force, we suddenly were blindsided by the Silicon Valley bank saga, which ushered in a whole new series of concerns regarding the health and safety of the banking system. Were SVB's problems idiosyncratic or signs of broader systemic issues that plagued the banking sector? In compounding this issue, the post-traumatic stress scars still fresh in investors' minds pertaining to the 2007-2008 global financial crisis. A few things worth highlighting here. Banks are a very important segment of the economy and the stock market as they reflect economic sensitivity as well as offering a conduit and providing liquidity to both the household and to corporates. Because of this, banks can act as a transmission mechanism that can magnify any blip into a tidal wave. So it was no surprise to see the stock market's reaction to these headlines, which could best be summarized as, sell first, ask questions later. Compounding matters, financials have been favorites for investors, a place to hide as a hedge against higher rates. So the crowded positioning was certainly magnifying the unwind. But the ultimate question, was SVB the canary in the coal mine? Or was this a one-off issue or something more systemic? We've written quite a bit about the SVB crisis, so I won't go into a ton of detail in here. But to summarize, SVB was a unique issue. Its deposit base was largely tied to tech startups, which have a high cash burn rate. 
as the Fed hikes into areas of the economy that had benefited most from cheap financing, like high-tech startups and crypto-related firms, it's no surprise that those deposits were recalled rather quickly. Add in some missteps and poor decisions regarding hedging or lack thereof on interest rate risks with their investments, and this helped to accelerate trouble and instigate a good old-fashioned bank run. A systemic risk? No. Idiosyncratic issues led to this outcome. In addition to the SVB issues, Signature Bank, a New York-based real estate lender that had been reeling from bets made into crypto banking, also failed over that same weekend. This marked the third bank to go bust alongside SVB and Silvergate, another lender who would face similar trouble back on March 8th, several days before the SVB headlines took place. In response, the Fed, FDIC, and Treasury all announced three big steps in an attempt to stem the crisis emanating from the collapse of SVB. All depositors would be made whole and access to their funds would be made available the following Monday. In the bazooka, the Fed created a new facility called the Bank Term Funding Program that would offer loans up to one year to banks to provide immediate liquidity to meet any needs. Importantly, the Fed was willing to accept treasuries, agency MBS, and other qualifying securities as collateral against these loans, with the collateral being accepted and valued at par, ignoring the mark-to-market losses banks were sitting on. The response from the Fed, Treasury, and FDIC all helped to short-circuit the negative feedback loop and restore faith in the banking system, bringing some much-needed calm to the markets. Failing to guarantee depositors greater than $250,000 could potentially have led to a massive shift of depositors away from small and regional banks and into the large money centers. Such a move could easily have accelerated into a full-blown bank run, putting pressure on many small-cap and regional banks, while putting a significant amount of deposits in the hands of a very few large banks. And this, in and of itself, would be a risk to the system in several ways. But would this mini-banking crisis change the narrative for the Fed in their March decision? Given three bank failures in the trouble surrounding First Republic, as well as a jobs report that was actually not at all that hot when looking at the internals of the number, the Fed certainly had cover to go 25 and talk hawkish versus a 50 basis point hike at their March meeting. Which brings us back to the market narrative. Markets had aggressively repriced the interest rate outlook on the heels of the banking scare, with the terminal rate going from a peak of 5.7% back down to 5.15 as of the month end, and the market pricing in somewhere close to 175 basis points worth of cuts by the end of 2024. That narrative was now screaming hard landing. And with the banking scare looming in the backdrop, in confidence in the economic recovery on shakier grounds, all eyes turned back to the macro data, and specifically, inflation. Another month, another inline and sticky CPI print. Not much new to write home about in this release, basically a redux of the January print. Digging through the line item data, we saw very little change from January. Energy prices drove the entirety of the deceleration of the headline CPI, but this was offset by a modest pickup in shelter, household furnishings, and a big jump in airfares, driving that sequentially increase in core CPI. But apart from these categories, it was just more of the same. Sticky. The good news? Food prices continued to settle down. New vehicle prices have also cooled off, while used vehicle prices softened marginally too. The bad news? Even with the continued drag from new cars, core and headline prices continue to be firm, and wholesale data from indicators like the Mannheim survey suggests that drag is set to end. Household furnishings and apparel prices have remained stubbornly strong, despite the inventory adjustment cycle, which now appears to have largely played out. 
and pandemic-affected services picked up again, driven by a sharp rise in airfares as well as a jump in lodging. As with the last month, the headline print may have looked a tad softer, but the details show the Fed's job is far from complete. Back to that narrative. Yup, it flipped once again. Now it was stronger growth and stickier inflation. Back to the no landing repricing of February. To the extent that the Fed's primary concern remains an unsustainably tight labor market, translating to cost pressures in services industries and elevated nominal demand, the labor market continues to show meaningful signs of easing. Vacancies are falling, job market churn is slowing as quit rates normalize, hours worked are stabilizing, average hourly earnings are easing, participation is rising. All of this is happening while the economy continues to add jobs and claims remain fairly benign. As we've stressed on this podcast before, the disinflation process was never going to be perfectly linear. As such, don't conflate stickier inflation with a reacceleration of inflation. It's not the same, and in fact, it's very different. And the hits just keep on coming. Headlines from already struggling Credit Suisse announced material weakness in its financial reporting controls and continued customer outflows. Not helping matters, the chairman of the Saudi National Bank subsequently announced that they would not provide further support for additional capital raising, citing not fundamental concerns, but the regulatory issues of holding a stake greater than 10%. That comment was followed by a remark from competing Swiss bank UBS discussing inflows the bank had seen during the recent turmoil. Unsurprisingly, most investors assumed at least some portion of those flows must be coming from Credit Suisse. Against an already fragile backdrop, emotion and fear were in the driver's seat, not reason, and the market narrative yet again shifted full circle back to recession fears. A CPI print that was mixed, PPI posting a surprising decline, headline retail sales that match soft consensus estimates, and the Empire Manufacturing Survey posting another large decline, recession alarm bells had begun to ring louder. And now, adding to those recession fears, small banks tightening lending. While we may not see a wave of contagion triggering more failures, concerns next turn to small regional banks, which represent nearly 45% of outstanding loans and leases, who may meaningfully tighten lending standards as they focus on liquidity amidst the risk of continued deposit churn towards the large banks. We can't stress this enough, though. This is not the same as the GFC. 2008 was about toxic assets on overlevered and undercapitalized balance sheets. Today's turmoil is about the need for liquidity to meet potential depositor outflows. The real problem here is a negative feedback loop stemming from a loss of confidence. And back to that narrative, are you keeping track? We've gone from hard landing to soft landing to no landing and now back to hard landing, all in just three months. So the question, have the risks of a recession material increased as a result of the recent financial system wobbles? First of all, Small banks had already begun to cut their lending well before the SVB issues began to metastasize. Big banks, too. But the key question to ask here, how important are these small banks to the U.S. credit system? Recent data shows that small banks provide roughly 2% of GDP worth of credit. If we assume that small banks completely shut down their lending, and yes, it will have an impact on the economy. But the pass-through isn't linear and not quite as big as you might think. And we think it's safe to assume that large banks and private creditors would likely pick up some of that slack should small and regional banks pull back. So let's assume that big banks pick up half of the drop in lending sourced from small banks and that roughly half of this flows through to the real economy. 
In econometric parlance, this is the loan supply to GDP multiplier, which tends to roughly be about 30 to 50 percent. So for every $10 drop in loan supply, GDP should be expected to contract by about $5, give or take. So let's hypothetically assume that credit extension in aggregate drops 50%. Small banks lending drops to zero as they initiate no more new loans, but big banks pick up 50% of that demand. So 50% of 2% or a 50% drop in loan origination from small banks, which typically account for 2% of GDP, that means that total credit supplied by small banks as a percentage of GDP drops to 1%. If we assume the flow through to the real economy is 50%, there's that loan supply to GDP multiplier we talked about, then 50% of 1% is a half a percent. So our rough back of the envelope calculation on the hit to GDP should small banks stop lending altogether could be roughly a half a percent. Look at the Atlanta Fed's GDP Now forecast, which is calling for first quarter 2023 growth of around 2.5%, with the recent range being between 2 and 3%. Now let's clip off that 50 basis points worth of slowing from that first quarter GDP number, and suddenly 2.5% growth becomes 2% growth. Not really a recession, right? Yes, small and medium-sized bank lending will likely be curtailed, but the size and scope of this pocket of lending doesn't appear to be quite as impactful as many think. And this finally takes us to the Fed's most recent meeting. In a unanimous decision, the FOMC hiked 25 basis points, bringing the upper bound of the Fed fund's target rate to 5%, while the quantitative tapering pace remained unchanged at $95 billion per month. The statement saw considerable additions and changes, most notably a softening in the language around the need for further hikes. This meeting also delivered an updated summary of economic projections, a.k.a. the dot plot, which proved little changed with the terminal rate remaining at 5.1%. In short, a dovish hike with the risk of future hawkishness. A few things worth highlighting from this decision, however. With respect to that informational asymmetry, the Fed knows precisely which banks are tapping both the discount window and the new bank term funding program how much liquidity they are accessing, and critically, what is occurring with deposit flows. The conclusion, this quote-unquote crisis, is really a matter of a small number of banks facing difficulties, and the Fed's lending facilities are capably meeting these stress funding needs. And the Fed's view on the impact of bank lending sector stresses? Banking stresses may be limited to a handful of banks, but the cat is out of the bag and credit conditions are likely to tighten and the disinflationary effect of tighter credit conditions will take the place of some tightening via rate hikes as it weighs on growth, employment, and inflation. Now that we know the Fed's reaction function to the banking issues, it's all about the data, and this is something we've continuously stressed, data dependency. Hard to believe that all of this happened in the course of just a few weeks, and even more impressive, the S&P 500 closed March at a level higher than when the Silvergate news first hit the tapes back on March 8th. So what do we think? What did we do? Rate volatility can begin to settle down as uncertainty around the Fed's reaction function to the banking terminal fades and the terminal rate expectations stabilize again. The bar for another hike in May is fairly high as the full extent of tightening in credit conditions likely won't be fully known until early May. The risk of unknown credit tightening will serve to offset any continued strength in the data over the next six weeks. Once that dust settles, the Fed can always go further if needed, but for now, they'll likely trade hikes for credit tightening. 
and that means we could very well be returning to an environment where we oscillate back and forth between soft landing and hard landing narratives. The balance of risks has shifted. The Fed will be trading hikes for credit tightening. Just how many? That remains to be seen. On the bond side, we'd argue that 175 basis points worth of cuts priced in between now and the end of 2024 is a bit overdone. As the market gets more comfortable with the banking system fallout, we would expect some of the hard landing fears to ease and the yield curve to move back to something closer to what we had in the early weeks of March. So expect some give back in treasuries as the curve prices out some of those cuts. But despite this, corporate spreads still remain attractive and we still favor investment grade. Looking across the equity landscape, we can see evidence of the damage that banks have had on returns. Small and mid-cap indices have roughly 23% exposure to financials, while the equally aided S&P 500 has almost 19%. And not surprisingly, these all underperform the broad market. We can certainly see the case for financials to continue to face headwinds going forward, from lower net interest margins and a slowdown in lending to increased oversight and regulation to rebuilding and increasing capital buffers that may include cuts to dividends and share buybacks. As such, we reduced our exposure to SMID, an equally weighted S&P, and reallocated the proceeds back into the broader S&P 500. Lastly, we still hold tight to our risk exposures, expecting the concerns surrounding the fallout from the banking worries to fade, and the scars not likely to have quite the impact that many bears have insinuated. April has historically been a strong month for returns. We've just thrown a mini banking crisis at the market, and yet here we are, powering higher, north of 4,100 on the S&P at the time of this recording. What else can we throw at this market only to see it remain resilient in the face of dire forecasts? This should tell you something. To wrap up our podcast, The Tactical Take, this is Jack Chianasiewicz. Hope you enjoyed the commentary and thanks for listening. Important information for listeners outside the United States. Natixis Investment Managers Distribution and Service Groups include Natixis Investment Managers SA, Luxembourg, Natixis Investment Managers International, France, and their affiliated distribution and service entities. These entities conduct any regulated activities only in and from the jurisdictions in which they are licensed or authorized. Their services and the products they manage are not available to all investors in all jurisdictions. For additional information and important podcasts disclosures for listeners outside the U.S., please consult im.natixis.com slash intl slash podcasts and dash other dash media. Further, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and not necessarily those of Natixis investment managers. These views were provided as of the date of recording and will not be revised. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute investment advice or an offer to buy or sell a financial product from any Natixis investment managers entity. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Investment risk exists with equity, fixed income, and alternative investments. There is no assurance that any investment will meet its performance objectives or that losses will be avoided. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Performance data discussed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results. Indexes are not investments, do not incur fees and expenses and are not professionally managed. It is not possible to invest directly in an index. This document may contain references to copyrights, indexes and trademarks that may not be registered in all jurisdictions. Third-party registrations are the property of their respective owners and are not affiliated with Natixis Investment Managers or any of its related or affiliated companies. Collectively Natixis, such third-party owners do not sponsor, endorse or participate in the provision of any Natixis services, funds or other financial products, provided by Natixis Distribution, LLC, 880 
68 Boylston Street, Boston, MA02199. Natixis Investment Managers includes all of the investment management and distribution entities affiliated with Natixis Distribution, LLC and Natixis Investment Managers SA. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited-purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Natixis Advisors, LLC provides advisory services through its division Natixis Investment Manager Solutions. Advisory services are generally provided with the assistance of model portfolio providers, some of which are affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. LLC Natixis Advisors, LLC does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax or legal professional prior to making any investment decision. Member SIPC, Atrax, 5608906, 1, 1, expiration date, October 31st, 2023, POD 37, April, 2023.